0: Namo tasa bhagavato arahato samma sambhutasa. Namo tasa bhagavato arahato samma sambhutasa. Namo tasa bhagavato arahato samma sambhutasa. Udang dhammang sangang namasami. So, if those of you who come tonight who are familiar with the hall, you may recognize we have a new um, resident in the hall. There's a very dear friend, it's Prajna Paramita, which is the uh, perfection of wisdom, who is uh, taking a female form at the end of the room, the end of the hall. And uh, this was installed yesterday. Mm. Prajnaparamita means the perfection of wisdom. And it's the name given to a whole series of sutras in Sanskrit, uh, including things like the Heart Sutra, which you may have heard of, the Vajra Sutra, the Diamond Sutra, and many other sutras who which focus upon a particular point and they focus on this point in a very um, thorough and uh, exacting and sometimes celebratory and often paradoxical way. And it's uh, yeah because of course uh, in a way this is this is almost a necessary method in some respect because you know what we are doing. in in Dhamma practice often is just getting past the way we normally think, conceive, imagine, assume, perceive things. You know, there's a certain encrusted, stiffened nature, you know, or our minds get encrusted and stiffened. You know, they get habitual, they get reactive. We're often re-running old stories, following the same assumptions, following fixed ideas, following... fixed perceptions of who we are who we think other people are the way we think things should be the way we feel we want to be and we get kind of stuck in these ways and like flies stuck in honey you know sometimes it tastes sweet but, but whether it tastes sweet or not it still sticks <laughs> here. so uh, what is often needed uh, or what the, the Prajnaparamita sutras um, present is a use of Paradox to kind of snap the mind out of its customary ways of thinking and assuming mm. which are much more than just verbal tricks but actual deeply held uh, instincts that in us which very much assumes and craves and expects stability, permanence that in us which very much perceives things in terms of self and other you know these are much more than ideas, they're deeply, deeply rooted inclinations. And, but what one finds is that in following these, we end up caught up in separation, loss, suffering, clinging, craving, judgment, <coughs> conceit, pride, defense, conflict, the whole lot. Because it, it actually those, those very deep rooted assumptions of selfhood and permanence and uh, the ability to hold on to the pleasure actually, they don't work. <laughs> it doesn't doesn't actually. We don't get fulfilment that way. It doesn't actually work. Yeah. You know, yeah. You know, you know. well, yeah. This is kind of like what the mind is. The mind is coming from this particular position and trying to make it work, and it doesn't work as we all know, and you dream along in it and it seems to be working and crash. You know, another piece of our territory disappears or something we didn't want arises, you know. It's a story, isn't it? It's the the little bit. And uh, yet somehow there's still this sense of, oh, well, that didn't work, but this one will. This one will be permanent. This one will be stable. this is somebody I can have or believe in or follow or be. That one didn't work, but this one will, and then I'll oh, dream along in that one and crash. You <laughs> think, right, that didn't work, but this one will. You know And we can spend lifetimes trying to, looking for, this, for the one that is. you know It's like the story of the sage you know sifting through a bag of chilies with a bag full of chili peppers, pl- eating one one by one, weeping. And the pain of eating these chilies, and somebody says, What are you doing? And he says, Well, I'm looking for the sweet one. It's in here somewhere, you know, and it's got a whole bag of them. So you can spend lifetimes doing this, and falling asleep and forgetting that, you know, losing the plot, you know. So some, something kind of radical is required. <laughs> you know, and these, these Prajnaparamitra sutras often work in terms of, of paradox and in challenging the mind's assumption. And they challenge it in terms very much of the fixity of a being and the fixity of uh, any kind of fixation. And primarily just get to the point where something is forming. You know, so, so you can say that point in the mind where something is coming into form. Okay. So it's often called a thought, you know, the beginning of a thought, and you might say the introductory meditation for this kind of practice called the Hua Tou in in Chinese is means you you bring your attention back to the beginning of a thought. So you might you know as a beginning practice you might think the word Buddha Buddha, and just as you're about to think the word, you bring your mind to that moment where that. Very thought is just starting to come up, and instead of following it, you just stay at that point where the thought is just cresting, just coming up into the mind. So it's like like a continual like opening the mouth, but not quite getting the word out. And so you know that, that you might say is the beginning of that practice. You start like that, and as as you know. As you develop that, as your sense of, as you begin to enter into that space of non-conceiving, yeah, which is not like drifting off or dreaming or going dull, but actually extremely awake. It's like you're almost waiting for a word that doesn't quite come. Because every time something comes, you, you pull your mind back to the moment of its arising, so it never actually properly arises. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. and so often people, this practice you actually have particular mantras and just keep coming back to what is it that hears the mantra what is it that is reciting the mantra what is the very moment when the word arises in the mind and then what is the moment when that beginning to bring that into the mind occurs it's a sense of a stirring so you can deepen it back to the very moment when the stirring begins You know, like you might say, you look around and you see someone and just at that moment you go, "Ah," you know, the moment of recognition, you see the mind is grabbed. It's kind of fixed that. Yeah, do you see that? You know, when you see someone walking along a path and first of all it's a bit vague and distant, you don't know who it is, and there's that moment when you start to, oh, it's It's rather like that. Mm -hmm you can sense something is sort of shifting, and then it starts to crystallize into it. that's that's and then once it crystallizes, then a whole load of movement starts to happen. you begin to fill in the details you know it's Sally, ah, oh, Sally, I remember you know you feel happy, you feel pleased, you feel frightened, you feel anxious, you feel you want to meet her you want to go away from her all this stuff comes running in behind it, and actually, all that's happened. In one sense, is the mind has found or formed an object and started working on it. You know, hmm? Sally hasn't actually really. She hasn't actually contacted yet. She's still, still just something you're perceiving. Yeah? And then when you when you kind of recollect what's actually happening, and you look around. Who do you actually see when you see Gerald or Harry or Susan or Bob? What actually do you see? You see colours, shapes, forms, and you see or you experience taking a particular, you know, outline view or characteristic and then immediately comes in all this sort of half-remembered associations come in that fill in and make that a being with a past, and all kinds of relational um, qualities going on, the whole thing kind of comes whirring in, you know. And sometimes these are extremely um, deluded, you know. We, some of they are they're, slightly deluded or extremely deluded in, in detail. We have a mistake of somebody, we have a perception of somebody, we have a bias about somebody based upon something that happened. Years ago, or the way we feel about big people, small people, men, women, people with strong personalities, people with gentle personalities, we can feel them, well, wonderful, spacious, loving person, and they're just basically sitting there, not, you know, we can feel them as frightening, you know, I mean, you're sure you're aware of all this, as it happens, it's projection. What's called in the in the Pali scriptures, papuncha or proliferation, that is, from the perception arises, the mind takes it, and then there's this kind of flow, of infilling, that outline, uh, and then this whole, in a way, the perception is the moment when, if you like, something. Notionally external enters you. It's like you get it, or it gets you. Say so that something stir, is stirred, and then suddenly, as it's stirred, all this inner, you know, we might say inner, for the sake of convenience, uh, expectation, uncertainties, joy, love, warmth, aversion, whatever starts welling up, you know, and, and, and flooding. Yeah. And then, you know this is going on, isn't it and uh and then uh, you know it occurs all over the place that is we we experience ourselves as being somebody who does that or has this particular problem or is this kind of person so that's almost like it it feeds back, so we we end up experiencing a self as the net result or the cause of all this perceptual mishmash perpancha and yet actually who who is that you know it's both incredibly poignant detailed endless you know the more you go into it the more labyrinthine it becomes the more evolved it becomes the more stuff you can make out of it it seems endless and yet in a moment where, who what where is it you know where is it so this is the good Papancha you yeah. and and uh, the quality of the one of the qualities of a Buddha is that they've actually stopped this they, this doesn't happen mm-hmm. you know this particular Then this is the, the, if you like, the highest wisdom is the stopping of this proliferating flood. Mm. And uh, there's a very nice sutra in the Pali. This isn't specifically a you Know a Mahayana teaching, but the Mahayana made a lot of, more out of it. But in the there's a very nice one in the Pali teachings, which are from the Kala Karama Sutra Sutta. I'll read you a little bit from it. Whatever in the world with its gods, Maras and Brahmas. God's and humans, whatever is seen, heard, sensed, cognized, attained, sought after and pondered over. All that I know. This is the Buddha speaking. Whatever is in the world of of God's and humans, whatever is seen, I have understood it. It is all fully known, but I have not taken taken a stand upon it. Thus, monks, a Tathagata, Tathagata is another name for a Buddha, does not conceive of a visible thing as apart from sight now, see the experience is sight but he doesn't actually conceive you know this is this is very this is what this is um, conceived. of course it's not just a, a thought activity it's actually that very movement where you know something visual becomes something emotional or mental that is you see it and there's a recognition yeah. So you conceive it, it's almost like conceive literally gives birth, right? It arises within you, so which is seen, is conceived of. There's this kind of mental note and emotional texture is added to it. So then it becomes, a thing becomes, apart from sight, it becomes dimensioned into an emotional resonance, um, a thought, an idea, a memory, an assumption, and so forth. He does not conceive of a thing as apart from sight. He does not conceive of an unseen. He does not conceive of a thing worth seeing. He does not conceive about a seer. He does this with all all the sense bases. So he's not saying nothing exists. There's nothing to be seen. He doesn't make that kind of assumption. He doesn't say, you know, that which is seen can be conceived of. He doesn't say there is something other than that which can be seen. He doesn't see that there's something that has to be seen, and he doesn't bring up the idea or have the sense of being someone who sees. <laughs> Just there is seeing. <laughs> and, you know, the, the the language, of course, is. Is sometimes, uh, you know, spins one's head around. But that's in kind of what it's intended to do, you know, these, these verbal patterns. Thus, the Tathagata being such like in regard to all phenomena seen, heard, sensed, and cognized is such. This actually is one way of discru- of translating the word Tathagata, it means someone who's gone into such. They're just this. <laughs> Moreover, there is no one greater or or excellent than one who is such. Whatever is seen, heard, sensed, or clung to is esteemed as truth by other people. But, But amongst those who are entrenched in their own views, a such one holds none of these as true or false." I've seen this hook on which humanity is hooked and impaled is the hook of I know, I see, this is the way it is this hook does not exist for a tathagata. so, in other words, he makes no absolute statement about anything whatsoever Apart from it's not that <laughs> 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 whatever you think it is it isn't whatever you assume it is, it isn't that's the assumption that's assumed so it's a way of actually completely come kind of like flipping out from mental construction, sometimes called a tamayata, which literally means um, made of not that everything is not that um so, actually, you know, there is a, one of the more positive aspects of, of this kind of practice is it does continually encourage and rest upon a commitment and a complete faith in the qualities of wisdom and compassion. You know, you, one is encouraged to keep relying and affirming and... Uh, celebrating the innate nature of wisdom and compassion. You know, that's why the Buddha taught, because we have this seed, you might say, of wisdom and compassion. You have to use two words for it. Or sambodhi, awakening. And this seed is like a seed, and it's stuck in mud. You know, the mud is ignorance. So... And this seed, to use the changing change the metaphor, is actually like something that's pulsing alive. And as it vibrates or is alive within this mud, it all this mud stirs, and these strange shapes and patterns occur out of this stirring. It's so th- and so it's the very almost the stirring of innate uh, wisdom and compassion, which is trying to actually burst through, is disturbing or this kind of Ignorant mud and it, these forms arise, these assumptions, perceptions, causal processes, desires, impulses, frustrations, and in a way they're all corrupted forms of this urge for clarity, for truth, for love and compassion. You know? so that's the more positive aspect of it. Is, is kind of you know, and if we could just clear off this mud, then this, this tremendous radiant quality. Uh, of wisdom and compassion could, you know, would be more clearly present. You know? So, you know, when you come down to it, you can recognize say, a lot of, of senses are gratification. Hunger is like almost a corrupted form of that in us which wishes for love, warmth, compassion, resonance, beauty. You know? So we're trying to find it in something. Yeah. and of course when the mind does resolve and and commit itself to acts of as you see, acts of generosity and kindness and joyfulness the quality of that is so beautiful that at that very moment when the, when you, when one picks that up at that very moment you don't need anything you know and I think this is a kind of a, um, an experience that we all have you know, you know it's called paramita. What the very prajna parameter is is an example of that. In that very moment, we we have generosity parameter. We act upon it. That very moment, when that arises in our hearts, is that, that you don't actually you don't care with any you know what the results are. You don't you don't mind what you feel like because of that moment. You're just completely unified on something of generosity, you know, or or of uh, patience, or of virtue, or of kindness, or whatever. You know? that's the point. The mind actually feels more fulfilled through these paramita channels, through these channels of great virtue, blessedness, gentleness, patience, forbearance, whatever, than it does through through the grasping and craving. You know? which which you know, if it worked, if it made one feel at peace, satisfied, and fulfilled, then surely we should do it. But the truth of the matter is, although we get some satisfaction, some sense of gratification, it's not really enough. And actually what we find that, that, for human beings anyway, is that, that complete resolution, that complete dedication in the moment to such things as kindness, generosity, truthfulness, virtue, has such a beauty to it such a clarity to it, such a strength to it, that at that very moment the rest of the world you know, it disappears, you're not trembling, you know? You're not prevaricating, you're not manipulating, you're just being straight. Um, and it's that and this actually is, uh, we might say, something of the essence. Of, of buddhahood, you know, these paramitas are considered to be you might say, that which streams forth from buddhahood, from awakeness now awakeness, you know, has a kind of manifest aspect and it manifests in terms of these great, great paramita, great virtues that the Buddha obviously manifested throughout his physical existence, you know, so it's not to say that you know it, you just sort of sit sit and don't do anything, but the idea of this this kind of radical arresting of mental flow is that you arrest the flows that are just kind of are uh, are coming from a, a confused, assuming, grasping place. It's always marked by the sense of self or the sense of other. Yeah. Marked by hope, marked by anticipation, marked by that sense of nervousness, you know. As this, you know, we might say anything like building this hall and the Prajnaparamita statue itself and these other wonderful statues, things, you know, if you're waiting for them, you wait forever. If you're expecting them, you're always in that sense of when's it going to get finished. And more or less it's something that you, that you learn from isn't it? when you're taking something on. You take on something, is that wanting to get it done or wanting to get it right or whether there's a like this or whether you can do it, whether you're good enough, whether you're not good enough, whether it's going to work and so forth. And if you just keep, keep purifying by committing to that intention of goodness however you, you want to express that and that becomes a guiding force in your life yeah? you keep start wondering whether you can you've you lost it already <laughs> or whether it's going to work you've lost it or how long for you've lost it Yeah, or whether anybody else likes it or not you've lost it you know, you've got to actually really come back to just the real purity of of, um, of mind yeah. and you think, actually this is possible the rest of it actually is not possible what we do most of the time is not possible to achieve most of the time we live in hope expectation, disappointment manipulations wanting to be this way and it, it never actually falls because it's coming from the wrong place you know we live in we so often operate in a world of time with future past you know pushing forward remembering back you know, and naturally the mind is blurred in that so what's being pointed to is this sense of very direct immediate um unification of the, of of intent you know. Through arresting the kind of involuntary disturbances and afflictions and outflows, and coming into from a place of of real commitment to purity, and then you just it will come. It comes by itself. You yeah. know, you might say it's 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 something more basic actually than ignorance. Mm is compassion wisdom <coughs> compassion you might say is that in us which does not reject resist dismiss look down upon give up you know it's that quality it's it's not just a soft quality it's also a very firm quality it does not give up it does not resign it is not fed up it is not uh, rejecting. It is that ability to sustain the sense of empathy uh, without looking for results out of it. Just because that's the way to be pure. Wisdom is the sense is the faculty does not indulge, does not proliferate, does not um, add and furnish. It's like a sword, and the two together are what are we might say ways of describing Buddha. And you can see these two images, and why we have, why I was wanted to have two images, is because there's a kind of con- or not necessarily conflict, but sort of oppositions, and somewhere in the mixture. You get the point, you know. If you see the male figure, the Buddha is actually very, very soft. It's kind of the arms are down. It's got a very almost like it's wanting to cradle you, you know. So in a way, it's a kind of uh, for a, for a male form. It's not the hard or 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 productive. It's actually a very soft, relaxed, cradling form, and the female form is actually very sharp. You know, it's got this sharp mudra and it's got a very upright, sharp cutting quality to it, yeah. and somehow in the mixture of those two, you sense wisdom does not fool around <laughs> it does not get buried in it does not take a home in, it's, it's a clear clean edge to it, and compassion is that which does not resist, despise, reject and in between when you those two sustain this measureless and indefinable purity, that's kind of the way we you know you keep coming back to very simple you know you get a sense of what 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 wisdom can do to your mind. you know can actually take it back, you know clean off the fuzz. Stop wallowing, dreaming, fantasizing, blaming, doubting, prevaricating, procrastinating, doubting yourself, you know, wondering what you should do. It's getting lost in all these kind of um, clouds that one follows them, imagining they'll eventually take you to somewhere good, and they just take one off to more and more clouds. There isn't actually an end to them. It's like you're going down a labyrinth that continually self-evolves. Wisdom takes you out of that. Um, you know, it prevents or it cuts off the impressions that one has about start when the clouds start forming around who one assumes one is or isn't, can be or can't be, should be or shouldn't be and similarly around others till eventually you know the sense of self and others becomes kind of irrelevant and you see how much tension there is in in holding that you know holding a fixed idea of somebody else and of course we often assume we you know we we've kind of grown up with the feeling that you can't operate without it. <laughs> yeah. But when there's that com- com- commitment to virtue and purity, then whoever, that's what you bring forth. And in that process, the, what can actually happen is defined by the potential in the relationship you know, where the other person is open or whatever's going on, you know. So but then it doesn't sometimes there's something you can do, sometimes there'sn't anything you can do, whatever. But that that is part of the joy of it is that you never quite know how it's going to work out. All you know, all you can know is whether your mind is wavering or doubting or pushing or forcing or denying or blaming or biasing and you just stop doing that. And uh, what comes out of that is certainly a good amount of, of emotional and psychological um, chaos at times. Um, you know, It takes you back into the whole wellspring of one's craving for to be needed, to be appreciated, to find somebody else, to get on top of things, to be in charge, to be known, to be whatever, whatever, whatever. And you just keep... Kind of working through this rather embarrassing stuff, um, uh, and you know, just seeing how actually you didn't even create this. You know, it's not created from some place of self. It's just this problem of ignorance. Yeah. So you're to see. You know, if there was a self who created all this, who who is that? You know, what who creates your mind? You know, do you ever consider that? You know. It's like that famous um you know, one of the first Zen teachings was the Bodhidharma sitting up in the snow and this, this disciple comes up to see him, saying, Please give me the truth, give me the truth, give me the truth and he says, I'll oh, go away and meditating, you know. He uh, says, no, please, please, I'm very sincere. Uh, uh, he said, so he, to prove he's sincere, he cuts off his arm. He says, here, he gave my arm as a gift. You know, I, think, I think you've got to take these things with a pinch of salt, but anyway. <laughs> In other words, he meant he wasn't just a day-tripper. You know? And so, okay, what do you want to know? He says, well, for years, you know, I've been trying to calm my mind. My mind is a complete wreck. and I can't really find what to do about it and how I can make it calm down. So the teacher says, okay well, bring me your mind. And he goes, uh. um, so there, I've calmed it for you. <laughs> <laughs> the simple practice being that when you, the, you know, the, the attention that, that points to something, if it's completely pointing to it, you know, that moment when it somebody says, oh, right, give me it you've just cut off your arm, now really for this very moment just bring your mind here, that very moment when you're in this very heightened state you can't conceive, you've forgotten because at that very moment you're completely focused on the act of attending and it's, oh, it's stopped now Because you can't, you know, the the act of finding or the act of attending and the act of conceiving, they can't operate at the same time. So either one's kind of conceiving and wondering and trying to figure it and trying to make it happen, or you're just purely attending. And that's, we might say, the purity of complete attention is there's nothing to attend to. That's, we might say, that's, that's that particular non... That's that particular prajna paramita practice. Yeah. It's, it's the cutter. Yeah. And it rests upon strong commitment, strong faith, and it... Out of that cutting away, out of that arrest... what is allowed, what naturally comes forth, is the great wisdom of emptiness. This is actually no fixed entity, no absolute structures, no final truth, no realities, no birth and death to be put to an end. All these things that we kind of you know, play with are just seen as sandcastles, you might say, or cloud forms. There's that wisdom of emptiness... And is the great compassion to be, that resonates, that embraces, that does not move away from this predicament. So this is the uh, nature of the Prajnaparamita. Well, that's the way I would put it tonight, but don't believe me. (laughs) (laughs) Practice for yourself, huh? Yeah. Hmm? You do that? Is it worth doing? <laughs> not comfortable. It's not comfortable practice, because there's that that edge. As it come, as it as you practice with it, it just underneath. You know, there's quite. Rumbly little world of events and thoughts and moods, it starts to peel that off when you come down to some, you know, longings and wantings and things you didn't even realize were there. Yeah. You know? remember one of the a senior, a senior monk who shall be nameless <laughs> you, can, you can start guessing who <laughs> that's your problem <laughs> he was saying to, saying to me he uh, had this sudden realization some years ago that actually what, it was, what, he'd, what his mind had been more interested in was not in being wise but looking like he was wise <laughs> You know, being able to say wise things, and you know, rather than actually being wise, it's more more important to real to look like you're wise. Goodness, Goodness. me, yeah, that's that's pretty. You know, check that one out. Mm. <laughs> and I thought it was great. You know, the the unpeelings that occur behind these often uncertain motivations that we have. You know. Our longings for comfort, warmth, being appreciated, being loved, being cherished, being being admired, you know. Things that, you know, you sort of don't like to feel that you have these needy aspects. Okay, you touch into them, don't get phased. don't start to assume that it's you and there's a being who has them, just experience these as you know energies, forms that arise. Mm-hmm. Everybody has them, different confabulations. They are the confabulations of this murk of suffering and uncertainty that we are heirs to. Mm-hmm. And uh, you just kind of hold that very with compassion, not to move away from it, not to start blaming it, dumping it, pushing it away. As you hold it, then you start to... Where does this begin? Where does it arise from? You, know, you can see if you follow where it goes, it goes everywhere. <laughs> where does it arise from? Come back to that. Where does it, where's the moment of its arising? You feel this kind of cry of hunger you know, of something reaching out. That's powerful. Where does that arise from? Where does that arise from? And of course, although it's in some ways a very sharp a moment of time practice, it's also a graduated one, because, you know, you just keep unpeeling layer after layer after layer after layer. Your practice remains the same. The landscape changes. And yet it's always the moment when it unpeels is the moment of realizing this didn't belong to anybody it wasn't really a problem in the first place so there's a certain humor and ease and joy that comes with that realization this is why the Prajnaparamita is also a massive celebration of uh, how innate purity is, how wonderful it is, how unavoidable it is when you face up to this uh, predicament of dukkha, of conceiving. Myself, I always look for an edge, look for contrast. Because that's what tends to act like a, a something that kind of grinds. You know. <laughs> yeah. So it's very often, you know, you see the contradiction of, of impermanence and having an institution. Massive, you know, here we go, place, structures, fixities, traditions, and yet somehow we're also practicing impermanence and emptiness. Pretty solid stuff, you know, million pound, you know, um, territories. Bound up with legal structures and management, and they hold the two together. It's a nice, you can see that thing that gets frustrated with it, annoyed with it, wanting to make it one way or another, I mean, you know, it just, it you, you when it uses these things to keep working on that uh, agitation in the mind. Why I've always, uh, without really choosing it, appreciated living in a mixed community of men and women, is that... Uh, apart from the more positive aspects of it just the you know this kind of there are strong there are particular general general qualities that men and women have and somehow you know women help to show me the edge of masculinity of its its stupidity <laughs> you know as a way that i assume have a particular you know, masculine take on things is just a take; it's not a reality. I always appreciated that, that um, mirroring. You know, uh, but it isn't comfortable. But if you want to be awake, you know, if you want to be awake, or you want what do you want to do? Be comfortable or wake up? Because <laughs> 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 if you want to be, if you want to be comfortable it's going to be uncomfortable <laughs> if you want to be awake it uh... it gets clear and pure and there's no regret anyone <coughs>